You know, having sensitive skin makes finding skincare products so difficult. It is. But today's sponsor, OneSkin, makes it easy. Their topical supplements are formulated with soothing ingredients and natural antioxidants. And they're gentle enough to use every day, even if you have sensitive skin. And it was founded by an all-female team of scientists. OneSkin's products are backed by extensive lab and clinical data to validate their efficacy and safety on all skin types. Their topical supplements are the easiest way to keep your skin healthy and hydrated without all the harsh ingredients or irritation found in other skincare products. In a third-party 12-week clinical study performed by third-party research organization OS01 Face was clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier, improve skin health markers, and diminish visible signs of aging. Like wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company by focusing on the cellular aspects of aging one skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer get started today with 15 percent off using code tco at oneskin.co that's 15 percent off oneskin.co with code tco after your purchase they'll ask you where you heard about them please support the show and tell them we sent you It is nice to feel like I have this agency where I can try to do something about a problem that I have. Whereas like some of the folks I've spoken to in terms of like user research understand their experiences with abuse and harassment online. It's very frustrating experience because they have this problem, but there's very little that they can do about it besides try to demand that the platforms do more. But it's hard to demand that Twitter make any substantive changes in a short period of time or Facebook or Instagram or any of these platforms. But I feel like I can at least try to solve this problem. I feel very lucky that I have this software engineering background and having worked at these companies and um, having the firsthand experience of, of the problem. I can actually try to build a solution for it. It's more than just your output, more than a bike. Welcome to the Clip Out, episode 165. This is Crystal O'Keefe. And this is Tom O'Keefe. Can I crawl up on your lap? It's cold down here. Well, no, there's a big giant thunderstorm. Are you scared? And I'm scared. I saw you had the dog on your lap. I was going to say, no, that's my lap is for the puppy. Oh. She she needed to cuddle. What if I gave you puppy eyes? Yeah. Okay, that's Would pretty that, effective. See? Yeah. So See, when we do our, our video YouTube, people are going to be able to see the looks you give. Yeah. See, right now... Uh, they don't know, but I'm going to do, because it's not video, but uh, I'm going to do the entirety of this episode on your lap. <laughs> no, you're not. I just hope there's no big thunders. <laughs> it does sound like it stopped, actually, yeah. or calmed down. That was cray-cray. But we probably should say that uh, starting next week, yes. all the episodes will be available on YouTube with full video the entire thing will so, have video so you will see, so right now we're on youtube but it's uh, on our youtube channel which is youtube.com slash the clip out so you can go there and subscribe to get the notifications when these are live but right now there's uh something on there but it's just a static image and it's just a way to listen via youtube if that's convenient for you some pl- people if they're at work things are blocked but youtube isn't and, yeah. yeah but moving forward again starting with next week's episode you will get full video when the guests agree 
yeah. you'll get full video of the whole episode. That so that'll be fun. You'll get to see all the weird faces I make. <laughs> my shit eating grin. <laughs> which And if he can make me squee, then you'll hear you'll see that you'll too. You'll get to see the the facial expression that accompanies a squee. <laughs> so that's That'll be fun It will and I'm looking forward to it Because we started it off For the superset And I love the way It turned out Like it, it's so great Yeah like if you're curious What it looks like You can go watch one uh, For our other podcast The superset Which is all about tonal You can go find that On our YouTube channel And check it out Yeah Just to get an idea Of what to expect Exactly Yeah So uh, anyway beyond that uh, What do you have in store For people this week We're going to talk about Peloton We're going to talk about Some articles that came out This week We're going to have Our segment with Jen Mann We're going to do an update On the fight camp contest And then some interesting stuff Going on with the instructors Awesome well before we get To all that shameless plugs Don't forget we're available On Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify iHeart Tune in We're all over the place You can find us Wherever you're getting Your podcasts from Be sure and subscribe So you never miss an episode And of course Check us out on Facebook Facebook.com Slash The clip out While you're there Like the page Join the group And of course uh, You can get everything Sent to you In a concise Format weekly Article links Pictures Videos Links directly to that week's YouTube video if it's live by the time we send those out. So uh, you can subscribe to that newsletter at our fancy pants website, theclipout.com. So there's all that. Let's uh, let's dig in, shall we? Let's. New content. Peloton 2020 has officially begun. It has. We are finishing up by the time this airs, we'll be finishing up week one. So the goal this week was that you had to take a class with every instructor on your team. Lots of questions about this. Um, As I mentioned uh, last week, I really, really wish that Peloton would get a little more descriptive when explaining things. Right. I cannot tell you how much time I spent answering questions again (laughs) this week. Uh, So common questions still are. Yes, it has to be every instructor. No, it doesn't have to be a 45-minute class. No, it doesn't have to be one of the classes they put in their collections. No, it does not have to be at the live time that they suggested. It was the times that they suggested for each team were merely that, a suggestion suggestion that you could gather. And the collections were also just a suggestion to give you some inspiration in case you didn't know where to start. Uh, You do not have to do a certain time frame. So for, for mine, I did... Five minute classes with three of the seven instructors, and I'm cool with that because right. I'm doing strength, and that's where I'm focused. So yeah, you got a, a lot of a lot of things going on now between Peloton and Tonal and Fight Camp, and yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. So um, so you know that's the great thing about Peloton; it meets you where you are. You don't have to do it a certain way. If you want to take a 45 minute class for each one of these, great. It doesn't get you any more points. Yeah. So do what works for you in right. your schedule. Um. But next week, it's going to change it a little bit. Next week, it's going to be taking two live classes with instructors. The tricky thing there is it is Wednesday, July 15th, and they still haven't posted the schedule for next week. So good luck planning ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've had some people be frustrated with that. The other key that as you're taking these classes, make sure you have your team hashtag on your profile. If you don't, it's not going to count. So you'll have to take it again. Like so. So please, please, please. It doesn't even have to be your main hashtag. Right. But you have to have it on your profile or it does not count. And then each week that following Monday. So next Monday, whatever date that is, what the 20th or something, we'll get a badge for this week. 
gotcha. that you've completed. Okay. Okay. So as we start off week two, you will get the badge for week one. Makes sense? Yeah, because they have to give everybody time to complete that week. And exactly. And then they'll, they'll flip their badge switch. That's right. And they'll all fly out the door. Right. And so people were worried this wasn't going to work with other challenges and stuff like that. It totally does. Like all you have to do is just be a little creative and a little bit flexible how you're approaching it. You do not again, you do not have to do 45 minute rides like or funny 45 minute runs. You just have to be creative with right. the classes you take. Well, I think that's great advice. For like, you know, like if you're, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you can go knock out a shorter one. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I sound a little frustrated with it. It's just like literally it's the same questions over and over totally. again. And I don't even blame the people for asking. Yeah. I, I'm frustrated that Peloton doesn't explain it because they have this great idea. Put more information out there. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> even on their FAQs, it's not there. <laughs> and when somebody was answering it on Twitter, they answered it wrong. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just been a whole. People have been very stressed about this whole thing. So I, I just wish that there were a little better communication with it. Peloton in the news. Barons.com had uh, an interview with Peloton Chief Financial Officer Jill Woodworth. Yeah. That just just sounds like a chief financial officer, doesn't it? Yeah. Jill Woodworth. Yes. It's got an air of... Strength. Right. And numbers. Right. She's really focused on good numbers. Yes. I'm picturing like a a nice (laughs) pantsuit. (laughs) <laughs> Hair pulled back glasses. She's very none of this is probably true, I'm sure, but this is what's in my head for Jill Wood- Woodworth, CFO. Well, she she must be doing something right because she's the one that took them public. So There you go. But it's interesting. This whole conversation did a couple of things. One, it dashed everyone's hopes about a rower happening soon. They uh, basically said, you know, the next item we foresee is a smaller treadmill. Like gotcha. she, they, she didn't promise that. Right. And she didn't say a timeline. But if you read between the lines here, that's what she's saying. And, the, and potentially a bike. That's the takeaway. And also, FYI, I'm hearing some rumors that that's accurate. And it's happening this fall. That's breaking news, by the way. How about that? Yeah. So uh, first off, I think the most important question, we're not also going to get a smaller treadmill, are no. we? Okay. Whew. I honestly love my tread. I'm very curious to see what totally. it's going to have and how it's different and everything. But like, do I need a second one? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next question is, any insight as to like what, a, like, is it going to be a complete rethink of the current bike? Are they adding like a, a, like a second and less expensive bike? It, both of the these will be less expensive. So, okay. so again, this is all rumor, but um, based if you kind of put things together that Jill said, you put things together that John Foley has said, what they're focused on is the, the democratization of fitness and right. they want to make this available to as many people and as many different levels of income as possible. So the thought process is this is what people are speculating and it makes sense to me that you're going to see a smaller tread you're going to see a smaller bike and the reason for that is it's going to open up the cost the cost is going to be different right um, and that it's going to be available to more people as far as what it looks like is it a whole rethink no clue there has been zero information about yeah, that I'm, I'm fascinated more about the bike aspect so it's like i mean you know i see the 
the tread, not every day, but a lot. And it's it's a big item. Yeah. The bike isn't that big. So what can they well, really adjust on that? They- I will say they're not saying it's a smaller bike. They're saying it's a less expensive bike. So maybe that and, and I am speculating, guys. So anybody hearing this conversation, this is completely my thoughts out of my head. I have seen right. nothing to back this up. I picture things like a smaller tablet or you can buy the tablet separately. Um, I see things like uh, maybe you use your app to connect, kind of like what Echelon's been doing. Gotcha. You know, I, these are all just things I'm picturing. Uh, maybe, and again, it's a maybe, uh, cheaper pedals. Maybe uh, it's not made out of carbon steel. Maybe it's made out of aluminum. Um, you know, those are just guesses. Like the tablets in black and white. <laughs> I'm guessing they're still going to have to have a pretty uh, good tablet, be- even if it's smaller. Right. Like I'm picturing smaller, not less, less. Because the thing is, is that it's going to need to be able to handle future updates. So if you went right. back too far, they wouldn't be able to handle the new things that are coming out. Yeah, because the, the tablet's the way that they communicate with your bike. And so they, they're really going to need that kind of as new and as high tech as as possible right and right now there's that v drive on it that's really silent like maybe it won't have a yep. silent of a drive right i was that was what i was thinking is like maybe whatever they do it just won't be as quiet mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean all of those are just speculation and it could be a combination of those things could only be two or three of those things yeah. not all of them like we just don't know it could point. be a unicycle it could be that uh, yeah i'm thinking no though well, but then it would be half as much right because it's only one one wheel technically it's already a unicycle mm, that's a good point damn it i know i really blew your mind there you did <laughs> And also, you know, it has this magnetic system in it that allows for it to have resistance. So maybe that will look different. You know, um, you have a magnetic system in you. (laughs) Um, But you got to wonder, though, what are they willing to change? Because, for example, the resistance already varies so much bike to bike. Right, Right. So, like, if you have a less expensive bike. Personally, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to go cheap in that area. Like if I'm going to ride a bike and I'm going to be, quote unquote, competing with other people on the leaderboard. Yeah. I don't want to suffer in that area. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I saw that the the cheaper bike won't have a seat. (laughs) But, you know, you joke. But the thing is, is maybe it won't or maybe it'll have a less expensive because like the one that's on there is a really expensive bike seat for a bike seat. You know, it's not like it's a $20 item. Yeah. So maybe it will. I mean, I, I really... It could be so many things and yeah. a combination of things. Not having a bike seat, depending on your mood, that could be a selling point. <laughs> you don't know. Well, they had that one uh, thing that you could add on to right, your bike. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as far as the tread goes, you know, there's so many things that you could change on the tread. I'm just really curious to see what they, what Peloton considers like your top of the line premium right versus the like what they're willing to shed from yeah, the bike to get I'm, the cost down i just like seeing the the thought process behind it will be fascinating regardless of what they decide and and you know no matter what they decide people are going to be upset about it i'm not saying everybody but people will totally there's going to be people saying you shouldn't have done this you shouldn't have done that yeah. no matter what they do absolutely it's not like they changed their sweepers <laughs> Oh my god, you guys. I cannot believe that. Ugh, embrace the change. Yes. So uh John Foley, a couple years back, has it been it's been a couple years it's, now, hasn't it? It's at been a least while. been a year and a yeah. half. It's been a long time. Was on How I Built This. Yeah. 
and he has returned to the scene of the crime for a second conversation. Yeah, this one they did over Zoom, but uh, another another conversation of how I built this, and uh, you can see all of that. Uh, you can watch the whole thing at how I built this on their website, and of course, we will have it in the embedded in the newsletter as well. Checking out the competition. Strategicsorcerer.com, which is harder to say than you might think. That's true. It's also harder to read. I'm like, Strategics are Surer? <laughs> what does this say? <laughs> so uh, they had an, an interesting article about how the fitness industry is grappling with the supply chain because there are issues. Yeah, obviously COVID has disrupted just about everything supply chain wise. And uh, so... I no, I think actually just, everything. Yeah, yeah, just about yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. As soon as I said that, I was like, "Wait, like, yeah, no, everything." Yeah. Um. Okay. So, if you look at the entire gym and exercise equipment manufacturing industry, they generated two billion dollars of revenue in 2019. Sixty-five percent of the equipment comes from foundries in China. So, what ended up happening was there were all these massive shutdowns, production rates. Plummeted, and this is across the board. Everybody has seen this. All everybody has been slow to be able to get equipment out this year, right? And we're talking. When I say everybody, I mean things like kettlebells, dumbbells, relatively simple pieces of fitness equipment. Not even obviously something high tech like a Peloton or a Tonal or a mirror. Like you, you understand how it could fall behind, but just a big piece of metal molded in a certain shape, like that's a problem. Right. Right. And then they, then they did a study and they found that the interest in fitness equipment rose by 500% in the U S since March of 2020, clearly because of COVID. And so weight training is the eighth fastest growing category. So what they were looking at is how are they going to fill all of these orders and uh, what they're looking at is potentially uh, they might be moving some of this back to America, which would be interesting. Right. But like and they didn't say it's definitely going to happen, sure, but sure. they said it would not be surprising if some of the retailers look to move their manufacturing operations closer to or in the U.S. I just thought that was kind of an interesting thought. That is interesting that the end result of this might be that some jobs come back to America but will they? Yeah. Because then COVID in the United States is like still a complete problem versus right. all these other countries who now have it under control. Right. And they're shutting down access from the United States. So, again, it will just be interesting to see what the ripple effects of all of this are. Absolutely. You know, I want to circle back around to Peloton making a less expensive bike and bring it. OK, so I have. A little conspiracy theory that just popped up in my head. Let's conspiracy theory is too strong, but theory as to <laughs> maybe why they decided to, to sideline the rower and focus on a less expensive bike. I think I know where you're going with this. Where do you think I'm going with I this? I think you're going like scaling. It would be easier to scale things no. they already have Mm-mm. versus a completely new product. No. Then what? I what smarty pants? Okay. <laughs> Good thing we're not on video this week. <laughs> So, I know, I've got my arms crossed everything. I know, you're all huffy over there. It's so, actually because like I'm cold. But. <laughs> so Peloton, obviously, they want you to use their product, whether it's the app or the bike. But I think it's safe to say they prefer the bike, right? They want sure. you on their own equipment and their own ecosystem and paying a little bit more yeah. per month, right? That seems fair. They would not want you to buy 
a different bike and use the app. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like they would prefer you to right. use their own bike. I see where you're going with this. Do you? I do. That the market is about to get flooded with used exercise equipment as more and more gyms go out of business. Then no, I did not. I was thinking more along the lines of undercut their competition. And I and I think that you're they, two steps beyond that. Right. Like they're there. I wonder if they're worried that they're about to get undercut by a flood of going out of business sales on equipment hmm. from these gyms that have 25, 30 bikes. And then you some markets you have 8, 10, 15 gyms going out of business and they're just going to like dump this equipment. Well, that's an interesting thought. Also, they were saying that, I mean, Peloton's re- rationale that they're publicly saying sure, sure. is that the market potential for treadmills in particular is like two to three team times higher than what a rower is, right. which is kind of what you've been saying the whole I've time. I've always had like, I feel like a rower is kind of a niche fitness item. And I think that long term, this is a problem that Peloton might struggle with is that I mean, the amount of fitness equipment that you can sell people is finite. So, okay, but then I know we're getting in deep here, but here's another thing that that I'm thinking of another way that they're saving money by going this route. They already Mm -hmm. have the instructors like it doesn't matter what bike you have. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you if If you you, add on rowing, you got to bring in a whole new team and or split up the time of the ones you already have. And there's only so much physical activities people can do a day. Right. I mean, they cannot work out eight hours a day. Just it does not. That's not possible. Right. So so that is another interesting thought. It absolutely is. Hmm. Something to mull over. Yeah. Let us know your thoughts. I'll uh, put some of those thoughts out there in the newsletter. And maybe this time you guys could actually respond when I send it because I I put questions out there. Well, (laughs) you know, I've been noticing that our our open rate has been dropping. Gotcha. And I've been I put questions in this last week. And and here's the thing. One person answered me. (laughs) One. Who's that person? They're now your favorite listener. They are. I don't want to embarrass them. But yeah, they are my favorite. And they they gave me feedback about our Jin Man segment because we have not gotten a lot of feedback. And totally. I'm like, OK, are we just wasting Jin Man's time? <laughs> like, Do you guys like it? Do you not like it? Like, I'm not asking for you guys to, to constantly be talking to us. But like, I, I just want to know that all this time we're putting in. Is it do you guys find value in it? Absolutely. You know? totally. like if, if it's if it's not valuable, then we'll change to something that is. Absolutely. So And you know what? Speaking of Gen Man. Yeah. Getting the psychological edge with Dr. Jen. So joining us today via the magic of Skypephone, Dr. Jen Mann, licensed marriage, family and child therapist and sports psychology consultant. You may know her from VH1's Couple Therapy with Dr. Jen or VH1's Family Therapy with Dr. Jen, her long running radio show, The Dr. Jen Show. She's written four best selling books, including The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection and Intimacy. Also, the creator of the No More Diets app, <laughs> yes. Dr. Jen. Hey, how's it going? Hey, great. Thanks for having me on, on the show. <laughs> We're very excited to have you. So Always happy to see you. So the topic of the week is, drumroll please, <laughs> the, the OPP, which is the uh, the Facebook group that so many people we find started listening to us so they didn't have to go there for the news anymore. It's so, so true. So welcome. But uh, when you joined mm-hmm. or got a Peloton, mm-hmm. 
Crystal, there were 8,000 yep. people, and now there are over 300,000. Yes. And over 200,000 of them appear to be jerks. It feels like that some days. It really does. Uh, yeah. And so we wanted to get your take on, uh, just to give you a little background, I, I know that uh, you don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. You have too much to do to spend time on okay. Facebook. There are... Like Tom said, over 300,000 people. But in the past, the official Peloton page was anybody could post about anything as long as it had some kind of relationship to Peloton. Well, what they recently did was they had a ton of people getting into arguments over politics, over racism. And there's always been a lot of bullying on this page. Just it's, it's just a lot of bullying. And so um, they decided to change their policies so that now all posts have to be approved before you can post to the page. So we're kind of curious from a psychological standpoint of, you know, social media and kind of being that what they would say, the keyboard warrior, you can say what you want. It's it's interesting because Peloton has been the very first community that I've ever belonged to that I felt was uplifting and actually restored my faith in humanity. And then here you have this kind of going the opposite direction on the OPP. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's so it's surprising to me, but yet at the same time, it's not. Because, look, when you have 300,000 plus people on any group, there are going to be people who like controversy. There are going to be people who don't. There are going to be people who have different political views. That There are going to be people who bring up hot button issues and people are going to get triggered and react. And it's very easy to be reactive when you are at your keyboard and it's also when there is some degree of anonymity, you know, look, granted, it's, you know, it's your Facebook, so it can be attached to you. But at the same time, there is a certain level of anonymity. It's very different than when you're standing in a room with another person having a conversation. And I think that people can hide behind that and say things they wouldn't otherwise. And also, a lot of the time, things get misinterpreted because there's no tone when it comes right. to typing away. So it makes sense that when we're talking about the sheer volume, the hot topics that are coming up, that people are getting triggered and that things are getting funky. Yeah, I always feel like, you know, we have a question mark. We have an exclamation point. We could use like a sarcasm point. Oh, my God, yeah. that would you be know? amazing. So people know <laughs> when you're being goofy, you know. <laughs> Or, yeah. or but, being but, absurd to make a point. But I think a lot of the time in groups like that sarcasm, even if someone is like, oh, I'm like, if there was a sarcasm point, it doesn't always go over well, especially sure. if people have been inflamed. And, oh, that's true. You know, yeah. from what I'm hearing from you and also from other people I know who are active in on the Facebook page with and have been kind of turned off by this aspect of it. And, and I think it's great that Peloton is sort of taking control and now um, filtering it so well. But I think that, you know, people are just getting triggered and, and it's, it's easy enough to do. So what do you do if you find yourself in that situation? Do you have ways to kind of talk yourself down? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, if you get triggered, don't type right away. I think sleep on it for 24 hours. There's nothing that's so important that you have to write back on Facebook, right? right. To a stranger, you know, that yeah. like, this isn't your mother. This isn't your husband. This isn't your sister. You can talk like those things need to be dealt with in a timely manner, but it's a stranger on Facebook. Sleep on it. 
run it by someone who you trust, who is not going to get you revved up. And like, we all know who our friends are, who are going to get us revved up and be like, you go, <laughs> you put that, you put that bitch in her place. You know, <laughs> the friend who's going to be like, Crystal, you know, this isn't worth your time and you're just going to get upset and it's not going to change her perspective. Like, Why, why do you assume it's me? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been Tom. <laughs> using an example, random example. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we all need those friends. And I think that that taking time, time is, is our friend in these situations. And, you know, taking a time out to cool off, you know, I tell couples to do that in their relationships all the time. You've had a, a hot conversation and just saying to your partner, I'm calling a time out. I'm too emotional to have an effective, appropriate, healthy conversation. I need to cool down. Let's meet back in the kitchen in a couple hours. That That's really important. And that to not let yourself be triggered and find a subgroup because there's so many subgroups where I'm not hearing about this happening, whether it's a working right. mom's group or a physician's group or, you know, mountain climbers who love Peloton, like whatever, <laughs> is, like find your subgroup where it's a smaller group and you don't see it happening so much. Yeah. We tell people that all the time yes. uh, to like to migrate from the OPP into a subgroup that has yeah. another personality Focus. trait or interest in it and that's also in conjunction with peloton i feel bad for you when she says find someone who can avoid someone who can rev you up find someone who can talk you down because i feel like i do both of those oh, he does both there of those are things. times when i'm like it's <laughs> the internet everybody hates everybody what you're gonna do and there are other times where i'm like you tell that son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> Look, and, and it's important to to have at least one friend who won't do that yeah like, <laughs> i have a, a a girlfriend that when i was single that like, if I would say like, oh, you know, should I text that guy? Like she was always like, yes, you do that. Like whatever her advice was, was always the worst. Like, <laughs> like, I was like, I think whatever you say, I should just do the opposite. Like, yeah. cause you're up for the drama. Like you're, you're ready to, to go. And at a certain point when she hit a certain age, she was like, you know, don't text that person. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> like, and it was like, okay, now I can go to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone who always gives bad advice can actually be very helpful as long as you realize <laughs> it's bad advice. always giving you bad advice. <laughs> it's very consistent. Like yeah. you said, do no, the opposite. It was just categories. Like in other categories, she gave me great advice. But that one, <laughs> when it came to, to boys, she was like, yeah, you text him. Yeah, he ha you haven't heard from him for weeks. You call him. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't heard from him in, for weeks, in a way, you kind of have. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I will also say before we go, I think when you get embroiled in one of these fights, I think a lot of people underestimate the power of not responding. Nothing drives people like that crazy than for you to forget about them. Okay, but I got to add, I just have to say, I think that... People want to be found witty and relevant. And so a lot of times their responses are because they can't not get that attention. They can't not get that dig in. Yeah. Because I, I see this stuff and I'm just like, don't respond. Don't respond. And then boom, boom, boom. Here come all the responses. And yeah. I'm like, walk away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Until next week, where can people find you? People can find me on all social media on 
Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and even TikTok at Dr. Jen Man. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. Thank you. Thank you. Man, there is nothing worse than when you buy a pair of sunglasses and then you lose or break them. I would agree. So what do we do about that? <laughs> well, that's where Gooder comes in. Their sunglasses are $25 each. So nobody likes to throw away $25, but it's a lot better than throwing away 100 or more dollars on a pair of broken sunglasses, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I have to say that's not my favorite part about Gooder. My favorite part about Gooder is that when I run, they don't slip, they don't bounce, and they're 100% polarized. Um, and they also come in like a million different colors and styles. For your $25, you're not sacrificing comfort, safety, or style. If you want to support the show and pick up a pair, Gooder is giving the Clipout listeners free shipping on their first order. Just go to gooder.com slash TCO. That's G-O-O-D-R.com and use code TCO to get free shipping. Gooder offers a 30-day money-back guarantee and 100% satisfaction. Find your pair at gooder.com slash TCO and use code TCO to get free shipping. If you're looking to avoid carbs, it's always a challenge trying to find bread that fits in with your keto lifestyle. Right, because you want to make sure that it tastes good and you want to make sure it has good ingredients. So I think Hero Bread does both. Especially when you're in the store, you are overwhelmed with bread choices. Yes. And I've had other breads before that claim to have low net carbs and you are certainly sacrificing taste texture size yes none of that with hero bread no because sometimes on the ones that have the low net carbs they have like no substance to it <laughs> it's like eating air it is and hero bread actually really tasted good and it felt like a solid piece of bread like i did not feel like i was giving up something i was surprised at how big each slice of bread was here's the real test of a piece of bread <laughs> i didn't make a sandwich with these I just had toast. Which you love because you have toast almost every day. I do. It was the <laughs> best textured bread of this sort that I've ever had. And if you're doing the math, it's zero to one grams of net carbs, zero gram sugar, and high in fiber. So don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TCO at checkout. That's TCO at H-E-R-O dot C-O. So we have an echelon for fight camp. Is that what's going on here? I can't even say it's an echelon. I know it's because it, I will say it's a rethink. So it, there's a there's a new a <laughs> boxing based connected fitness item yeah, out, yeah. and it is at least not a rip off of fight camp. It's yeah. a, it's a different. Uh, it is, but strategy. there's another gym out there called Nexorcist that I'm pretty sure it's a rip off of that. Like it, okay. like Nexorcist doesn't have lights on it. But does it spit pea soup on you? No. Oh, that would be the exorcist. Sorry. Nexorcist. Nexorcist. Yeah. Okay. You don't even want to know what I was going to ask was if it did with a crucifix. Um, but this one is called Lightboxer. And I will say, coming out of the gate, calling yourself the boxing of Peloton. Uh, Peloton of boxing. Peloton of boxing. Yeah. Thank you. Eh, maybe that's a bit. Mm. That is SEO driven. I know it is. That is all that's about. Well, I feel like. The way that this was worded was all about like, there's this brand new thing that's never been done before. Even though it's been done before. Exactly. And so just to be clear, 
the Peloton of boxing is fight camp. Right. I just want to put that out there. Like it, it's a little bit more gamified because it's like it's got like it's almost like a dart. Simon says it's like a dartboard kind of a thing. And it's like punch here and I'll punch here and I'll punch there. And I know you don't use fight camp, Tom. So I know that you can't understand this yeah. without, you know, maybe doing it. But like the system, this light boxer thing, one of the downsides to it is that it doesn't have the ability to do an uppercut on it. So like you are you can only do straight on. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. like part of fight camp or using any heavy bag, you can do uppercuts, you can do jabs, you can do body shots. Right. This is very limited. There's like there's like five shots you can do. Right. And so I feel like I'm I, kind of irritated that there's not not more being said about right. that. And I will say looking at it, like I didn't know the the words to put it into, mm-hmm. but I did think like this looks limited as yeah. to what you could do with it. And also they were t- going on and on about how much less room it takes up than a heavy bag. And I I'm not seeing it. It looked because it, it sits on this giant stand. Right. So I'm like, how is that any smaller th- or than what I've got? Yeah. I mean, now I will say with that one, in theory, you don't have to have like sand or any or water. OK. You know, um, base gel is what I use. But so, OK, that that would actually be a valid, valid argument. But the rest of it, I'm not I'm not seeing that it's that much smaller. Yeah. It's a smaller target area. But I don't without seeing it in person. And yeah. This is just based on looking at it from like in the video. You can see a person in front of it. So I'm going by assuming that's a standard person size. Like right. they're not a gigantic person or a tiny, tiny, tiny person. Just a normal size person compared to this thing. It doesn't look that radically different from right. a footprint standpoint of what I have with the fight camp. I guess I also felt, too, that it's like uh, boxers have been training on a heavy bag forever f- for the existence of boxing. Like, is is that broke? Uh, no, it's not. And and so here's another thing. I know you read a lot of what John Mills puts in Run, Lift and Live, mm-hmm. and I always find it super fascinating. But one of the things that he's been putting in there a lot is uh, who's backing all of these companies, which I find super fascinating. Right. Well, the interesting thing about this is I don't think it has to do with how good of a product it is or it isn't. The interesting thing is it's the same guy that backed Twitter. It, uh... So I think we're talking about a very different thing. Like, to me, Fight Camp is an awesome product, regardless of who backs them financially. I think that this guy has connections that put him in a different kind of world where they're not even these people aren't even necessarily seeing a fight camp. Right. They're seeing that this guy did it. And then just like it's checking a box without even really doing any research, which che- is sad. Checking a boxer. <laughs> but but to your point, you know, a heavy bag is a heavy bag for a reason. Right. Like it has a like it feels like you're actually punching something i just don't see how this could give you the same exact feel of that it does have sensors in it that in theory show you how fast and stuff you're doing it but again i'm just not seeing that this is brand new because i remember not even joking seven or eight years ago we went on a trip and there was something like this sitting in the gym yeah and it didn't work by the way (laughs) and and are you sure you're not thinking of me (laughs) No. Um, And so uh, I don't think this is a brand new technology. The only difference is it comes to your house and you have to use an app. It all has to go through your phone. Mm. Um, So you can mirror it to a TV, but you don't have the ability to. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not not saying it's I'm not saying it's like on echelon level of frustration. I just don't like the way they marketed it. But you're right. It's all about SEO. What sells, not about what's true. Yeah. And um, but my my issue is that I just don't know that it's necessarily true to say this is so much smaller and more compact. And I really 
do think that there is a value between doing uppercuts and body shots that you're being told to do on fight camp. Not to mention with fight camp, you also get to do kickboxing, which you sure can't do on this thing. You have to kick really high. <laughs> I guess if you're like a rocket, you could do kickboxing. But even if you could, they don't have those <laughs> programs. So you would just be kicking it randomly. <laughs> hey, speaking of fight camp, you could win one. You sure could. Uh, if you go to the slash fight camp, we're giving away a fight camp personal gym right now. And a one year membership. Yeah. So you are all set for the next 360 five days and they will deliver that right to your house so you don't have to worry about installation or anything like that because it's a pretty simple assembly that you can do yourself you don't got to worry about letting somebody in your house in the middle of a global pandemic it's just a little less foot traffic for you and it's lots of fun you love it (laughs) it is lots of fun and i do love it yeah i've decided that this week i'm gonna try kickboxing okay it's next up oh you're gonna be a little rocket <laughs> I still don't think I can kick that high. They started in St. Louis, you know. I do know that. Yeah. I only know that because I'm married to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. It is, yeah, and it's and and I know that not because it's about dancers with long legs, but because it's about Broadway. Yeah. So make of that what you will. <laughs> but uh, but back to fight camp. Yeah, like uh, you should go and enter the contest. Each week we ask you a different question. They're not too terribly difficult. You do a little bit of leg work. A lot of times you can probably figure it out just by using your noggin and uh and then there's all sorts of other ways to get extra entries whether it's following crystal on instagram or following fight camp on youtube whatever there's all sorts of different ways to increase your chances of winning so go to the clipout.com slash fight camp and if you want more information about fight camp go to join fightcamp.com. also i just want to say we're on week three there's only four weeks to this one time's running out that's, do not delay that's true clock's ticking Well and Good had an article about yoga for brain fog. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on right now, and I don't know how you're doing with it. For me, it varies day to day. Today's one of my angry days, which is probably coming through on this episode. Explains the kickboxing in your future. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. But with so much, regardless of what you feel about any of the things happening, there's a lot, and it's distracting. And sometimes working from home or just having not as many things going on it can be kind of hard to focus. And so uh, this article was all about like, if you might need to get your focus back, you might kind of need to find your center and yoga can help with that. And and the reason that we included it is because our very own yoga instructor, Ross Rayburn was included. And he talks about how specifically inversion exercises positions can help you with brain fog. Awesome. And if you want to link to that article, you can find it at facebook.com slash the clipout or at our newsletter that you can sign up for at the clipout.com. Robin Arzan announced that she has her own YouTube channel now. She sure does. So all of the uh, Hustlers at Home programs that she's been doing on Instagram, okay, you can find it all on YouTube. I believe there's going to be other content there as well. So it's it's at the YouTube and then it's R Arzan. Awesome. And of course, we will have a link to it. And the newsletter and on Facebook. And while you're on the YouTube, you can subscribe to our channel, too. Just, just click over there. Just yeah. hit the button. And Jess Sims was on the podcast Alley on the Run. Yeah. And uh, she talked all about running, which is great. And for those of you who reached out to me and said, you need to have Allie on the podcast. And one person even took the initiative to comment on Allie's post and try to connect us. I tried reaching out to her and she did not respond. And I don't say that to be begrudging to Allie. I'm just saying I did. I did try. 
I, I just wasn't successful. What you gonna do? Right. But um, in the meantime, you should definitely check out Jess Sims on her podcast. And from what I understand, she talks about all kinds of different running subjects. So if running is your thing, you will really enjoy this podcast. You should check it out. And then Hallie Shapley has a new book called Strong Like Her. Yes. And featuring the previously mentioned Robin Arzon. Yeah. And it's all the book is all about women's athleticism throughout history. So it's pretty cool that right. Robin Arzon is featured in it. And uh, she posted some of the pictures on Instagram that were in the book. I got the impression that it was like a coffee table book. OK. Uh, and uh, they're gorgeous pictures. Like it's it's really good lighting and well done. Right. Um, and uh, I'm very curious to get to read the whole story. I don't know. I've got a pretty long reading list at this point, so I don't know <laughs> when I'm going to get to it. But it is I am very curious to see what this is about, because women have done a lot of athleticism. Yeah. Like they've contributed a lot to the history of athleticism. And I'm curious to see what is all in this book. Cause there's probably stuff I have no idea even occurred. I bet there is because it, it seems with a lot of stuff like that, it just doesn't get talked about as much. So it's it, it's oftentimes pretty easy to be to surprise people with things they didn't already know. Exactly. And finally, uh, Peloton has a new artist series featuring Brittany. Britney so Spears. How do we do this? Like, on the one hand, we're supposed to leave Britney alone. <laughs> that was only in 2007. Oh, okay. I think it's okay to bother her now. We can bother her now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you Although, maybe not, because I think she's still in that conservatorship. I mean, so I yeah, don't know. It's, it's, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's made great music, though, so. Whether we can bother her or not, we can still enjoy her music. That is true. And I hope she's doing well. I do, too. I feel bad for her. I do, too. Like, I can't be a good... I, I can't even imagine what she's yeah. going through. I just... Yeah, like she's... I mean, it's hard to take somebody that you know is worth millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and be like, you poor thing. Right. But I just feel like she started down this road before she really was old enough to make... To Absolutely. Re to really make deci adult decisions. And, and now it's kind of... There's not another thing for her to do. And I, yeah, I've, I always have kind of feel, felt bad for her, but I, I have too, but we can still appreciate her amazing artistry yeah, because so she's had a lot of hits a lot that she has. So what do they have in store class wise related to her? So, um, by the time this airs, this will have already occurred. So today, uh, 7 30 PM, there's going to be a ride with Cody Rigsby. And I know again, you don't ride Tom, but Cody Rigsby and Brittany are like, if he knew Brittany, they would be best friends. Like he talks about Brittany. All the time. And I, I say that as somebody who doesn't take that many Cody rides. I and you know, know that. that. It's like how people that barely listen to the podcast know I love the monkeys. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, and then um, Eric, Eric Jaeger from Germany is going to be doing a ride in German on demand on the 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern. And Bex Gentry is doing a run on Thursday, the 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Rebecca is doing a boot camp today uh, on the 15th at 10 a.m. Eastern and Maddie Majacomo is doing a walk on Thursday at 10 a.m. So, my gosh, there's more. Maddie also <laughs> is doing a hit cardio Wednesday at 1030 a.m. Eastern and Robin did a full body toning on Thursday at seven six on <laughs> sorry seven sixteen at ten thirty a.m. Shoo! I don't know that we've ever had this I many know. classes with one instructor, like you, one one artist. I almost feel like this is indicative of like 
maybe Peloton, when they do an artist series, they like put it out to the instructors like, hey, who wants to build something around this? And everyone and said everybody yes. Everybody was like, ooh, me, me, me. I, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a really good point. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting that so many of these are on demand, like the walk is on demand and the boot camp is on demand. So um, I don't know if that indicates that they, you know, filmed these a while back. I don't know what that means. It's right. just interesting, especially in conjunction with they don't have the schedule up for next week. You just never know with Peloton. Maybe they're about to drop another big surprise on us. You never know. Maybe that surprise will have been revealed by the time this is aired. You never know. You never know indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Checking in with the Peloton community. So uh, joining us today via the magic of Skype a phone is, uh, is pretty lofty. She's got things here yeah, to talk about. She does. Software engineer, diversity advocate, interned at Facebook and Google before going on to work for Pinterest and Quora, and is currently the founder and CEO of Block Party, an app that helps tackle online harassment. Tracy Chow. Hey, Tracy. How's it going? Hi, it's good. Thanks for having me here. Oh, thank you for taking the time to yeah. to be on. I, know, re- I read something like that, and I'm just like, why is she talking to us? Well, you know, Tom, <laughs> social distancing. She's got time on her hands. <laughs> also, I am very obsessed with Peloton newly in quarantine, so it is very exciting to be able to talk about Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like that, especially when you first get it, and then like, and other people don't understand, and so you're yeah. like kind of spreading the gospel of Peloton, and yeah, I get it. So, so when did you find Peloton? That's a good question. Um, I actually heard about it pretty early on, maybe even in like 2014 or 2015 when I was living in San Francisco. Um, but the first time I heard about it, the person who mentioned it to me just described having a very expensive clothes hanger. So I didn't actually know what he was talking about. <laughs> and later, when I moved to New York City in 2016, I was a very avid user of ClassPass. So I would sometimes see the Peloton classes show up on the schedule. So I went to the studio a few times to ride, uh, which is now very fun because now like four years later, I can see my output scores from my first couple of classes, um, <laughs> which are very, very low. But uh, I really only got into Peloton a few months ago, late February I started getting pretty nervous about coronavirus spreading and ordered the bike and that arrived early March, maybe like March 1st or 2nd. And I've been riding Just it every time. day since then. Uh, oh, yeah. You I'm really got in under the- a 12 week streak. Yeah, I've been working on it every day. Uh, I think wow. My well, average really- stats are at least like I think it averages to two or three hours per day that I'm doing some Holy- kind of Peloton workout. Although Whoa. it does overcount a little bit because I've also set it up as a partial workstation 
where I have a, the spin tray on top. And so for a couple hours during the day when I'm working, sometimes I'll just be on the Peloton riding as well. <laughs> <laughs> but what, but what a great way to keep moving. You know, that's, that's one of the beauties of it. Like you can use the Peloton in so many ways. You can use it to be ultra competitive and take a Tabata ride and go at your hardest speeds, but you can also, you know, just keep moving while you're doing something else. So it's, yeah. it's great that it's so versatile. Although it is funny when I look at my um, workout history and the stats for those classes, there's the ones where I go really hard. Um, like I just did a 90 minute power zone endurance ride this morning. That was like output of over 900. Um, and then <laughs> wow. there's the rides that I do the scenic rides while I'm working and the average Watts will be like 35. <laughs> really, really low. So if you look at my average over all my classes, it's pretty, pretty low, but yeah, it's, it's good to have the, the variety. Um, I have also discovered that when the AC is on too strong and I'm getting cold rather than fiddling with the AC I just hop on the peloton and ride a little bit and then my body temperature goes up and I'm no longer cold so <laughs> that is <been> my <laughs> latest hack temperature Smart. modulation yes You're, you are you are your own thermostat <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. So I have a question for you. It sounds like with the given the nature of what you do, that you move a lot. You've already said that you were in San Francisco and then you moved to New York. And I believe you're currently speaking to us from London. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in London right now. So were you nervous about purchasing a bike with the fact that you move around a lot or, or do you feel like you're stationary now? Well, now I'm stationary. Well, sure. We're everybody. all stationary now. Like <laughs> most of us. Is your plan to stay stationary once the world returns a little yes. more to normal? I don't know, actually. I think that it's just all so uncertain. It's hard to say. Um, I ended up in London during lockdown because I was... I normally hop between the West Coast of the U.S. and San Francisco and um, London and just go back and forth because my team is totally distributed. So we were already all working from home or at least like just in different places before quarantine happened around the world. And I have a couple of teammates in Europe. So it was kind of nice and, and some in America. So it was nice to, to go between the two um, just to line up time zone wise. And then when lockdown happened, I was in London and decided to stay here. I didn't know how long it would be, but I anticipated that it would probably be worse than most people thought. And just knowing how much physical activity is important to me, I figured it would be worth it to get the Peloton. Like if I can't work out for one day, I already get really antsy. So <laughs> even if it was just going to be a month or two in quarantine, I knew that the Peloton was going to be worth it. Uh, totally. And yeah. Now, now it's, def it's definitely been a worthwhile investment. Probably my number one best purchase for quarantine. Well, that's great. And yeah. and I will also say, should you decide that you will not stay there, it's super easy to resell them totally. because they're not resold that often. Yeah. So, so they go oh, quick. Yeah. So do, yeah. do we know, and this might actually be less a question for Tracy and more a question for Crystal, because okay. you know these sorts of things. <laughs> are are they have? I know that in the States that there's a pretty good delay now to get one. Do, do yes, we know there if that's is a delay in the UK as in well. In the UK? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or as we call it, the Uck. Do they call it the Uck over there yet? Has that caught on? I've been trying to get that going. Not, not, not quite yet. Although, yeah. There's a lot of political shenanigans happening over on this side of the pond as well. So maybe, maybe we don't get into the politics on this on this yeah. podcast, but it's been fun. 
<laughs> yeah, I bet. Oh, uh, yeah. I bet. So, so, so it sounds like you were into fitness prior to finding Peloton. Were you, were you always active? I was not always active. I grew up never doing any sports. Uh, I had a very sort of stereotypical Asian parent parenting style where they said, you're not any good at sports and it's not going to help you get into college. So don't waste any time on sports. Spend that time studying. So did not do any kind of physical activity. Um, prior to in college, I started going to the gym in order to read like people magazine while on the elliptical. But uh, I really started <laughs> working out and running about 10 years ago, I think, um, when I just finished school. So in my first job, a few of my colleagues and I decided to do the couch to 5K running program, uh, yeah. where, as it sounds, you go from not being able to run to running a 5K. And we signed up for a race together. So ever since then, I've gotten steadily more active. And in the last few years, I've been much more regular uh, about going to work out. I think class pass was a big part of it because the early class pass deal was something like $100 a month for unlimited fitness like studio classes, which normally would be $25 or $30. It was obviously a money-losing proposition for them, but it was great for people who wanted to try lots of different studio classes. Um, so that got me pretty hooked that I was going to these really fancy, nice studio classes every day, sometimes twice a day, because uh, it was unlimited on this plan until they realized <laughs> they needed to make money and made it more expensive. But then <laughs> when, when I was already already hooked, so... I was really into classes like Fairies and Rumble. Uh, in the UK, it's like One Rebel or Another Space, a lot of the boot camp hit type of classes. And like from the earliest days of like just starting to run with my colleagues, I've also been running more. There was a few years in that span where I would try to hit targets of uh, 100 miles per month or something like that just to give myself something to aim for. I kind of rotate through different challenges. For myself to keep it interesting, which has actually worked out really well with Peloton as well. Like joining all these different Facebook groups for Peloton has given me all <laughs> these different challenges to do, which has been good to keep myself entertained during quarantine. <laughs> Absolutely. And how did the yeah. studying thing work out? Did that pan out or? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> yeah. So, so what exactly does the software engineer do? Good question. Uh, I feel like now people are much more excited about tech and software engineers than they were I think, when I was in school and studying this. But um, as a software engineer, like any other kind of engineer, what you're doing is building things. It's just that the things that you're building are digital. So they're websites or services. I mean, a lot of what goes into Peloton is built by software engineers. But the work that's involved is everything from figuring out what to build and how to build it. What are all the different trade-offs involved, talking to different stakeholders like your potential customers and users, but also like on the business side or design side. And then after you figure out what you want to build, then there's actually writing the code and testing it, pushing it out for users to use, monitoring all of that, responding to bugs and incidents, maintaining the systems, getting feedback, adding new features. So... There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. If you think about, I don't know, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but um, like civil engineers, if they're building a bridge or people who are building a big church or skyscraper, like how much stuff goes into building something like you can build small things. So that you can build like a little shack and that's like easy. You can hack together a little, a little website, your own like personal website or app. But if you want to build something, let's say like 
Google scale or Facebook scale, and that involves a lot of people. And all the different parts that go into it can be different. So if you are just the one person building your little shack, you can do all of it. But if it's a really big company, then you might just get one small part of it that you're focused on. I don't know if that analogy is helpful, but very no, totally. yeah, a lot of things that go into it. Although now, since I'm a startup founder and trying to build this new app um, block party, I have additional responsibilities on top of just the engineering work. So there are some days where I still get to do technical work, which I love. But other days, it is all the other stuff involved with starting a new business. So like filing taxes, making sure we're <laughs> compliant, <laughs> uh, thinking about hiring, recruiting, all the other considerations around building a new product and a, a new business. So how does one become a software engineer? Where like Is that like something... Like, were you 15 and you were like, I want to do sweet baby snow peas. I have to be a software engineer or I will die on the inside. Or is that like (laughs) a career path that kind of reveals itself to you as you go through your academic journey? So what's a bit ironic in my case actually is both of my parents are software engineers. And somehow I still did not really understand what being a software engineer meant. Even well, that's because nobody listens to, to their parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, the type of software that they wrote know, a couple of decades, a few decades ago was less the consumer software, the things that are kind of exciting and shiny now. Like now you can see all these different apps that people use. You see like, oh, like Instagram or Pinterest or Snap or Peloton, like all these different things that we're interacting with, there's software involved with them. So it gets a lot more exciting to be a software engineer. Like my parents were building lightweight database systems management and they delivered their software on floppy disks. Uh, So as a kid, I saw them at their computers typing something and then (laughs) they had floppy disks that they would sell. But that didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know what that was. Um, Sure. And I grew up uh, in the Bay Area, which is home of all of these different um, software companies. Like my high school was in Mountain View, pretty close to Google. My high school actually invested in the seed round of Snap, amazingly. I didn't know that my high school invested in startups, <laughs> but they invested <laughs> in Snap, uh, which was great. It was like when, when Snap IPO, that was a pretty nice chunk of change. Um, so uh-huh. I was surrounded by all of Silicon Valley, but somehow still didn't really understand what it was about. Um, and I think some of that is that shift from the kind of more old school software or original Silicon Valley was more about hardware, like literally the Silicon chips, the Silicon, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> like the enterprise, uh, like networking database type of software. And then only later, more recently has there been much more of the consumer stuff that's built on top of it. So I didn't properly appreciate what software was even going through college. Uh, so I studied electrical engineering for my undergrad and then did a computer science master's. But somehow I managed to finish school with two degrees in engineering and still not understand what software was until I started my first job at Quora. And Quora, which is a question and answer site at that time, was a very small company. I was the fifth person there. So we were really building everything from the ground up. And it was there that I realized, like, oh, like we are making something exist that didn't exist before. Like if it weren't for us sitting here in this room writing code and making Quora, Dot com, there, there would not be this site where people can ask questions and answer questions. And so that was a revelatory moment for me 
So somehow after all of that, like growing up in Silicon Valley, having parents who are software engineers, getting 200 degrees from Stanford, like actually even interning at software companies like Google and Facebook, I still didn't really appreciate it until I was working at a really early stage startup and seeing like if we weren't here, if the five of us weren't here, this would not exist. Um, and that was when it really clicked for me. Um, so it was kind of a long circuitous route mentally to get there, even though kind of if you just looked at everything I did and where I was, it seemed very obvious. But I will add one other thing on that is as a woman in engineering, all the cues I was getting from classmates and from like people in industry, like mentors that I would talk to while I was still in school, nobody ever encouraged me to be a software engineer, despite the fact that I was studying electrical engineering and computer science. And I think there is a gendered component to that, uh, where I've not talked to many other like, women who study computer science at Stanford, my, my alma mater, and all of these women studying computer science are being told to do non-software engineering things. And it's often with the justification of like, oh, like, you're more social than the normal engineer that I picture. So maybe you should not do engineering, which just makes me a little bit angry because like software is not, there's like all these misconceptions that software is people sitting in their basement, like hacking away by themselves, like never in contact with anybody else. But actually like when you're working as a software engineer, you're working with other people and trying to make something that's useful to people. And so inherent to the work is understanding people and social systems and contextualizing all of that. So it's just like a whole bunch of bad stereotypes wrapped into that kind of advice. It's very gendered for women often getting pushed out of the technical path, even if they are perfectly qualified to and even like studying fields that in theory bring them into becoming a software engineer. Yeah. When you were talking about your analogy of like building a bridge or building a house, like it's a, that it's, you know, it's a lot more collaborative than, than one might initially envision so you would think that like having some social skills would be, would be a good would thing. be a selling point <laughs> yeah it's like none of that logic makes any sense like oh because you're social and you don't look like my idea of an engineer like you shouldn't be an engineer like but that's just terrible logic but right that's the exact opposite of and what it should be and you don't know any better like when i was in school like, people would tell me like oh you should be a product manager or maybe you should work in uh marketing but you have a technical background, so it's great because it gives you credibility when you're doing marketing. Like those are all wow. the sorts of things that I would hear, but I didn't know any different. I didn't have very many role models that I could look to um, that take me down like the, the path that I ended up going down. Like I kind of fumbled my way onto it. I'm very happy and lucky that I ended up on the path that I ended up on. I'm very grateful, but it feels like it should have been a lot smoother than it actually was. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about marketing because that's that's my day job is I'm in marketing and I can't tell you how many times I go to like some sort of marketing event and it's like I'm the only guy in the room now uh-huh. and it's it's like it's become such a female dominated profession which is fine but it's just it's just like all of a sudden I looked around one day and I'm like I'm the only dude here like what <laughs> like that's kind of like how'd that happen but okay. <laughs> I, mean, I would also argue that that's not ideal because in any field, you'd probably benefit from having a diversity of folks sure. who are present and bringing different perspectives. And I think a, a misconception is, or just a way that people kind of misrepresent this notion of diversity is that it's about having more women. It's like, no, like right. a, 
a team that is 100% female is as non-diverse as a team that's 100% male. Right. Like diversity is around having a mix of people, right? Um, that's exactly right. Yeah, right. it's become, it's become uh, like a politicized buzzword. It, you know, like so many times, like, I'll say it because I'm one of them. The white guys in the room get their hackles up you know what i mean that it means that that means less of us and but not necessarily like i love marketing you know what i mean and i mean i just i have a passion for it and i'm always kind of in that mindset but yeah like the, it, it shouldn't just be women just as the software engineer shouldn't just be men right right i think all these gendered stereotypes hurt everybody because <laughs> right? there's they people do. like you yeah. who are great at marketing and there should be i, I imagine that there's more people who are similar to you who would for men who would be great at marketing, but because of gender stereotypes or whatever are, are pushed out of that field. And then we're losing these perspectives. Um, and, and similarly on the engineering side. I definitely think that's true. And growing up, so I've I've always had kind of a, a an interest in technology. I mean, I still love all the new gadgets and gizmos that are out there. But I, I never had anybody encourage me, particularly in math or science. It was like, I was always drawn towards like, oh, if you're good at English, you know, like your the communications and what they used to just call English back then. And so that was where everybody kind of pushed me. But it's it's funny because now I didn't want to go back to get another degree because I ended up with an, an MBA and I didn't want to go do anything with engineering, but I wanted to break into project management. And so uh, whenever I was working at a robotics firm, that was literally my only option was to, if I wanted to continue and become a project manager, the only way I could do that was to go get an engineering degree. And so I kind of tried to find other ways that I could become a project manager. And so that was hard to do without an engineering degree. So I kind of find the whole conversation pretty fascinating. Yeah. So you bring up another interesting point, which is like there is this sort of gatekeeping in different industries where people will say you can't do this unless you have X or Y credential. And oftentimes that credential is not really that necessary. Uh, like I've seen this with hiring, recruiting for technical roles or even non-technical roles within the software industry. Well, sometimes they'll insist that people have a computer science degree and the truth is you could study four years of computer science in university and like a lot of maybe most of what you study is not relevant to a software engineering job. Um, and there's also plenty of people who haven't gone through that kind of path and have picked up software engineering on their own. But there's this artificial gatekeeping that happens. Actually, part of the reason why I got a computer science master's was not because I actually necessarily wanted to, to study it. Um, it was almost more on a, a dare from a friend, but also the, the thought that having a computer science degree would just be useful to have that like sheet of paper or that credential. Uh, it turns out that the specialization I did, which was artificial intelligence, is actually mostly math. So I spent most of the time doing like matrix calculus and like, you know, a lot more math things, uh, like deriving proofs and solving optimization problems as opposed to the things that are kind of core to a software engineering job. So almost all the classes I took are irrelevant to software engineering work I did once I started working. But because I have a piece of paper that says I study computer science, uh, a lot more people will take me seriously and give me opportunities within the software engineering domain. Huh. Hmm. Well, that's really fascinating. So I know this wasn't one of the questions I, I put out there, but what would your recommendation be then for somebody who wants to go into the software engineering fields? Like what path of education should they take 
to optimize their chances to get a great job? Uh, this is a bit of a tough question because the world also changes so quickly. And I feel sure. like any advice that somebody gives is very much informed by their own experiences, which are probably quite dated. Um, I do think if you want to be a software engineer at this time, like just major in computer science, it's the easiest because everybody pattern matches off of that. But if you can augment that education with something else like uh, design, kind of more like user-centered design thinking or psychology or augment it with like history, sociology, philosophy, anything else that can round out the skill set. So you're not just a technical person, but you can contextualize what you're building. That will make you a much more thoughtful engineer and somebody who can bridge between technical and non-technical. But I think there's a whole question now also of like, our university is the way to go, especially in the United States where it's so expensive. Like, do you really want to go into so much debt just to get a university degree? I think at this time right now, it's still very useful to have a university degree. I think that's going to change quite quickly. And as we're in lockdown and different universities are making different plans on whether or not they're even going to open their campuses for the upcoming school year. I think there's a lot more of these questions around what is the value of a university degree? Is dialing into Zoom classes every day for a year really the same as you know being in that university environment? What are the things you actually get from that? So I kind of hesitate to make any strong recommendations on this front since so much is going to change and we're seeing such a huge acceleration and so many trends are already happening before coronavirus and it's really hard to predict how it's all going to shake out. Yeah, I always felt kind of like the dirty little secret of college is it's less about the education and more about the networking and that once once a school kind of establishes that they're good, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. and, and so those good people end up networking with other good people and of course that they kind of build on that i mean if you look at like even something like let's take it out of the world of technology but like the the writer's room for the simpsons is staffed almost entirely with former harvard grads because they worked on the lampoon and when that first started it they hired people from the lampoon and then they hired more people that they knew and they hired more people that they knew and it's really hard to crack that world if you're not coming from the lampoon background you know and if people are going to start just yeah like you said taking a zoom class it's going to be really hard to justify why you should go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton instead of just doing whatever. Yeah. The degree, like the credential is still useful in a world sure. where we over index on credentials. So I'm not trying to justify like over indexing on like fancy degrees, but that is still useful. And I do sometimes find like being able to say that I went to Stanford, just a useful thing to be able to throw out if somebody is disrespecting me, uh, which is unfortunately <laughs> common. Um, so there is still some of the value in just like that sheet of paper or the, you know, the virtual sure. the virtual sheet of paper, the line item you can put on your LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, I think what you're saying around the network effects, that is really so powerful. And from the perspective of somebody who's thinking about hiring for my company and also thinking about diversity and inclusion, trying to bring in people from different backgrounds that I don't already know. It is this difficult balancing act when you're constrained, you need to hire people, you want to find people you trust to work with. It's obviously easier if you've previously worked with them or you've known them for a long time. And so those are the people who are in your networks. And it's just so much easier to draw from those rather than open up 
a big call for people to apply. And then you have to sort through and try to figure out who you are actually going to work well with. And so there is this huge balancing act. As somebody who spends a lot of time working on diversity and inclusion, I also know like you don't want to keep just drawing from your own networks because they will be very homogenous. Um, right. What you right. try to counter that is, is much more a long-term thing, but like try to build your networks to be less homogenous and then you can keep drawing from your networks because then they're not all the same. Uh, but that, 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 that's like a many, many year commitment to be able to do that. But when you're looking at all the different trade-offs you have and trying to build a company or assemble a team for a project, like it's just so much easier when you already know those people. And so then like the power of the human networks, people that you've already built up relationships with and known for a long time and can trust, it's nice to be able to to tap into that. But yeah, like if, if everybody is just another name on a Zoom call, like that kind of you know, networking isn't happening, right? So some of that value or a lot of the value that people previously ascribed to going to some of these universities is gone. So what are they actually paying for? So I kind of want to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm curious, since you do have this startup that you're working on and you you just said it's a balancing act, like given that, you know, you're you're trying to bring new people into your company, if you had to choose one focus that you're looking at more than the other, are you focusing more on that that specific education and background or are you focused more on the skills that that person brings and kind of knowing where they're from? I actually don't know where most of my teammates went to school. Um, so it's much more about the job, like what the job requires. And actually, my team has been, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's unintentional, but it's been remarkably diverse. And a lot of it is randomness, like who happens to be available and who happens to join the team and work out well. So I have teammates everywhere from Serbia to Mexico to like different cities across the United States. And yeah, I don't think there's anybody from Stanford except for the interns where I have a couple of interns coming this summer that was just easiest to draw from the network that I was already a part of uh, at Stanford but the full-timers on my team are all spread out it's almost nothing to do with um, education or prior prior work like I, I don't know specifically which companies they all worked at. Like I looked through their their backgrounds when I was trying to work with them, but much more of it was actually testing out working together. And then if that went well, then bringing them onto the team full time. That's awesome. That is awesome. So yeah. you're kind of kind of known for uh, raising the profile issue of representation in tech companies. How did that kind of become your thing? So I did not think very hard about diversity issues at all when I was in school. And I think there's just this mentality of like, this is, this is the way the world is. And, and there's always going to be problems with the world. So I'm, I'm not going to try to fight it. Um, but when I started working full time and looked around and saw how non-diverse the teams were and very importantly, how that impacted the quality of the products we were building, it started to concern me quite a bit more. Uh, so there's some part of it, which is selfish, which is just like, I want to, be in environments that are more diverse uh, because I felt very out of place. I did not have that sense of belonging, but also I could see what the impact was um, on product decisions we're making where like sometimes my teammates were all male would look to me and say, Tracy, what would women think of this decision? I'm like, I don't know. I'm a 22 year old who just finished school. I cannot speak for all women. I can give you my opinion and you can try to extrapolate it, but this is a really poor way to make decisions. Um, And, there's a lot of uh, 
sexism and discrimination. It's sometimes difficult to call those things out because it's rare that people would say like, I'm not giving you this opportunity because you're a woman or I right. think you're worse because you're a woman. People don't say those kinds of things. Um, sure. And it's, it's more than just gender. It's also like many other forms of um, identity and experience. But I think over time I was seeing these patterns play out much more. Uh, so when the second female engineer joined Cora and I started to understand her experiences and realize that I was not alone and how I was feeling and started talking to more female engineers across industry. Then I started to understand, Oh, there's actually patterns here. It's not an individual problem. It's very easy. I think for people to, uh, or people from marginalized backgrounds who are maybe not as aware of what's going on to internalize blame for things not working out. It's like, I'm not cut out for this. So I, frequently doubted myself and thought maybe I'm just not cut out for software engineering. I really like coding. I like building things, but this industry doesn't seem right for me for some reason. I don't know what it is. So I would internalize it as like, it's my problem as opposed to it's a systemic issue. Uh, so I started to become more aware when I was working in industry and it wasn't just like in the immediate workplace it would also be going to conferences. Um, and one incident that still sticks out in my mind is going to a conference about a programming language, which is extremely technical. You would generally not go to a conference like this unless you were somehow technical or connected to it pretty closely. Um, but I went to this conference and people just wouldn't talk to me seriously. Like I asked questions of them about like, you know, where in your stack do you use Python? The conference was about Python, the programming language. And they would give me answers like, oh, you wouldn't understand. <gasps> And I would just look at them and be like, why do you think I asked the question? <laughs> um, and, I, and then I tried to be more specific about my technical questions. I went to like another booth in the exhibit hall for this conference. And I asked them, like, so I see that you're using Flask, which is a Python micro web framework. I'm wondering uh, what kind of QPS or queries per second can you withstand in terms of like read and write? I want to understand like your scalability. So it was a very technical question. And the guy was also like, oh, like, yeah, I don't think you would you would understand. I was like, oh. <laughs> even just to ask that question requires right. some baseline level of understanding. It's not as if I just like picked a random question off the internet and then came here to parrot it at you to test you. Um, but it was, wow. it was things like that, and like that that was a funny conference. The first day, I was so angry by the end of it that I almost didn't go back for the second day. But then I thought, like, well, it's not really fair that I should give up a professional networking opportunity or learning growth opportunity just because other people don't see me as an engineer. Uh, but I did think like, oh, maybe the prop, one of the problems was I was wearing a dress on the first day. And so the second day I wore a t-shirt and jeans and sneakers and it actually went much better, unfortunately. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, so so like a lot of these experiences kind of like built up over time. Um, and then when I was working at Pinterest, so this was in 2013, I'd just gone to a conference called Grace Hopper, which is like a celebration of women in computing. So it's a lot of women that go, uh, thousands of women. Now it's like over 10,000 women who uh, come together at Grace Hopper. And at Grace Hopper, I had heard Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, speak. And she was talking about how the number of women in technology, the numbers were dropping precipitously. And I didn't necessarily disagree with her, like the, the sentiment that like there's not enough women in tech and it's probably going down because there's a lot of really insidious patterns. But I was wondering 
what number she was referring to, because to my knowledge, there was no data on this. And I kind of looked around for it. And so after going to that conference and hearing Cheryl speak, I wrote a medium post that asked, where are the numbers and pointed out the sort of hypocrisy of an industry that claims to be very data driven, that did not have any data around the diversity (laughs) of its workforce. And by not having any data around it, then pretending that it wasn't a problem. And it was a call to action to companies to actually start talking about their diversity data or releasing their diversity data so there could be some visibility and transparency and also a way to measure progress if new initiatives were rolled out. So a lot of companies would talk about their different policies, like their very generous maternity leave policies or unconscious bias training they were doing or whatever different programs they had to address diversity and inclusion, they would talk about how much they were doing. But absent any kind of metrics, it was very difficult to say that any of that was effective. Um, And when I was thinking about what I could recommend to Pinterest, my employer then, I looked at all these companies like doing their fancy press releases about like what they were doing. And it was very hard for me to say like, yes, we should copy what Facebook is doing or what Google is doing or whatever X company is doing because I couldn't actually justify that any of those things they were doing were effective. So after I put out this Medium post, actually quite surprisingly to me, um, companies did start publishing their data. And some of them were submitting to um, a repository that I was running. So it was a crowdsourced repository. It was mostly smaller companies that were submitting to me. But then there was a bit of a snowball effect. And the larger companies started doing it as well. So Google in uh, May of 2014 was the first big company to do a holistic diversity data report. And now essentially all the the tech company, all the major tech companies do annual diversity data reports, uh, which is very useful to understand where we are as a baseline and also understand if we're making progress or not. And there's a lot of criticism around like how fine grained the data is. Like, does it really accurately represent what's happening? Like it's not intersectional. So you look at gender and race separately and we're not looking at what does it look like for black women, for example. But I think having a baseline to start from has been really helpful to know where we stand as an industry, which is not not good within tech. Um, <laughs> so I think having that data elevated the profile of the diversity and inclusion issues within technology to a much broader audience. And so people outside of tech could also start to see like, oh, these companies are really not diverse. Uh, whereas for anybody who worked in the companies before, like just going on to like the Google campus, for example, you would see that it was not diverse. You could walk through different buildings and know like, oh, this is an engineering building because there are no women here. Or if you watch a building where there were a lot of women, you're like, okay, I know this is probably HR, marketing, sales. (laughs) It it was just very extreme. (laughs) It was very, very extreme. So anybody who's been on these campuses already kind of like knew it was an open secret in Silicon Valley, I think. But once the data was published and it meant that people outside of technology, outside of Silicon Valley could also see like, oh, this is a problem. And so that kickstarted a lot of the diversity and inclusion work that yeah, has been you know, over the last few years. Unfortunately, not as successful as we would like, but I'm glad that at least people are paying more attention now than they were before. I'm a little bit nervous that going forward, especially with coronavirus and like all the things that are about to happen, like all the shakeups of work from home and all these changes that are coming, diversity and inclusion will again be put on the back burner. So how was that treated? I mean, I'm assuming people weren't like, hooray, Tracy, thank you for <laughs> yeah. pointing all that out. We will go address um, this immediately. <laughs> so the way it unfolded was a lot more uncertain and slow because nobody really knew what to expect. So 
Pinterest was very supportive from the very beginning. So I wrote this medium post and then I thought about it. I was like, well, I, it seems a bit you know, hypocritical to issue this call to action to industry about everybody should have their diversity data out there if my own employer doesn't do it. So I went and asked the, <laughs> the, the leadership at Pinterest like on you know, PR, legal, and HR, if it was fine. Everybody was like, yeah, it's fine. Although, to be honest, at that time, we didn't know our numbers at Pinterest were better or worse than anybody else because there was no industry standard. Like sure. We didn't know right. if we put our, our numbers, like if it was going to make us look really bad. Right. Um, and at that time, if I recall correctly, we were 13% female in engineering at Pinterest. By the Which time I left high. the company, it was like t- maybe 22, 23%. So we brought wow. it up by almost 10%. Um, wow. So the other companies but, were low because you hired them all. Um, but i think it was like no that's not true it was just like a lot of like nervousness because people didn't know what was good or what was bad right Um, right and so it was also this thing where like if everybody moved at the same time everybody published at the same time it would be okay but if like one went first nobody else followed so that was more the the vibe i was getting people were uncertain about what to do Um, yeah but as more and more people as more and more companies started publishing it became more of the norm and the companies that didn't do it. So like Uber was a holdout for a long time, for example, which Shocking. speaks hmm. to <laughs> the culture they had internally. Not, yeah, that was not yeah. very surprising that they were a holdout for so long. They started to get called out for, for being a holdout on that. So it was good to see those shifting norms. I think a lot of companies didn't like it. The people who are more risk averse, especially legal teams would be like, oh, this is gonna <laughs> yeah, yeah. legal never. And, yeah, like discrimination lawsuits, like any which way the data goes could open us up to a lawsuit. Like if we have an underrepresentation of women on our teams and it could be like we're discriminating against women. But what if we publish more data and we're looking at like out of people who apply, who gets hired and like if there's a higher percentage of women that gets hired versus who apply. Then, then are you favoring the- women? Yeah, like, are the men going to then come and say that they're being discriminated against? And, I mean, not that surprisingly, actually, like, there was a case like this, I don't even know, this guy James Damore from Google, where he... Poor baby. Like, <laughs> yes, he cl- he claimed that it was, like, the men who were getting discriminated against. There was a New York Times article, which made me a bit angry to read, that talked about, uh, it was, like, men in tech, like, has this whole diversity thing gone too far? Just, like, really... I don't think we've gone too far when almost all companies are still run by men, right. mostly white men. We have very little gender diversity, very little racial diversity. Like when you have like a a small cohort of like white men complaining about how things have gone too far, like maybe you don't need to amplify their voices. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that on a lot of fronts. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess I'm surprised though that given how people can be when you shine a spotlight on things that that you as a person were treated like with revenge you know like you weren't blackballed it doesn't sound like it sounds like they knew that you because of how smart you were thinking about it and being clear with your words that you were kind of like a ball of dynamite so if they didn't treat you well you could go off <laughs> so they had to treat you well is what it kind of seems like i don't know maybe i'm reading too uh, much into it i would say i've had different experiences on this front and i definitely have been blackballed or i, I think i i'm almost 100 percent certain that i've had opportunities denied because of speaking up about diversity and inclusion uh, uh 
But I was very fortunate when I worked at Pinterest that they were actually genuinely supportive. And I think that's because they saw the, the value of diversity and inclusion. They valued what I was shining a light on and my push to bring more diversity into the company and how it would actually help us be better as a company, as like a more diverse team that's more creative. Uh, and there's all this like research that backs up like more diverse teams are more creative and innovative, but also specifically for the products we're building. And there's now been like very clear examples of how Pinterest has integrated diversity into its products. Like for example, their search function, or you might build a previously search for makeup and skincare type, hair care type of things, and would all be white women. Now you can actually do like skin tone or hair type based kind of there's like a palette that you can search on so it's actually a better product because diversity has been baked into it um, so i think pinterest was extraordinarily supportive because they understood the value of what i was saying um, that's not the case across all of industry but i feel like i was quite lucky to be at a company that saw the value of it and also saw like we had a really unique opportunity and i think we were well positioned because we were small enough that we could actually make changes and see them have a pretty big impact across the company as we were a few hundred people at that time, as opposed to like tens of thousands, where if you want to move your percentages at a company, it's tens of thousands or over a hundred thousand. Like that's, that's a lot of people. You have to either yeah. be hiring a ton to shift the numbers or you have to fire people. And that's very difficult to do. So like if you, yeah, if you're trying to like, let's say increase your percentage of women in engineering and you already have tens of thousands of male engineers, how are you going to get to a higher percentage of female like you either need to hire a ton of female engineers or you have to fire some of your male engineers. Like the numbers don't work in another way. But if you're a smaller company like Pinterest was, which was only a few hundred at that time, we could actually make pretty material gains in the percentages because we were still small enough and the amount we were hiring relative to our size uh, made up possible. But at the same time, even though we were small-ish compared to some, some of these other tech companies, we had a relatively big consumer brand and a brand within the Valley. Like a lot of people know what Pinterest is, what the company is. So uh, we kind of punched above our weight class in terms of brand recognition. So when Pinterest did things, people actually paid attention. Like if you were a 10 person startup and you said like, oh, we're, we're doing all these things around diversity and inclusion. And look, we have you know, four of our eight engineers are, are women. People would say, that's great, but you only have like eight engineers. It doesn't really, right. <laughs> like, that, that, that's like really small numbers. It doesn't matter. Or like, it's great for you, but that's not really necessarily like, scalable. Like that's not proof that you can do this. You know, when you get to tens or hundreds or thousands of people um, that you can do things, you know, when you, when you get big, um, but Pinterest was big enough that people cared. So it was at that sweet spot of like small enough that changes really mattered and could be implemented and you could see results in a short period of time, but also big enough that people cared. Yeah, that that makes sense. It that does, just, it's yeah. Like, it, it's weird for me. I I just assume Pinterest is giant. Yeah. You know? Which they probably, well, are, they probably now. are now. But it, like, it just seemed like it came on the scene so fast. I just always assumed oh, yeah. that they, it was giant. Yeah. You know what I mean? They that, always felt that, large. That there was always tons of money behind it because it's all of a sudden it was everywhere. And like, oh, yeah, it's, baked so into so, it's, <laughs> and it's baked into so many sites where it's just like you mouse over something and it's like click. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the pee and well, you also know. you remember we're in the Midwest, so it takes a while to. Oh, by the that's time, true. By the time things show up here, yeah. it is everywhere. Like, I, like <laughs> I'm, st I'm right now as I do this interview wearing parachute pants. <laughs> <laughs> so Pinterest actually had pretty good reception in the Midwest, unusually for a tech company versus many others. So I joined the company. We we're roughly ten people. So back then it was still like a very early stage startup and. 
I didn't think there's any guarantee. I, I remember thinking when I joined, like, okay, this whole thing could end in like a year or two. I, I don't know if the startup is going to make it, but oh, it seems like a nice product right now. But I remember like when I, when I joined, we disproportionately had a lot of users from the Midwest. Um, <laughs> and, and, and some of that was intentional. Um, so Ben, our CEO, I'll talk about his press strategy. And unlike many tech companies that are based in Silicon Valley, did not want to get tech press. And like a, this is very early on, obviously, but like early on, the uh, rule of thumb around doing any press or PR was we'll only do an article or an interview if we're the only tech company that's going to be mentioned in the publication. So like Sunset Homes or like anything that's you know, talking about something else that's not technology, but we are the only like tech company mentioned, that's fine. But we do not want to be covered in technology press. So it's actually a little bit under the radar in Silicon Valley for a while because the the tech blogs that all the tech people read were not covering Pinterest. Um, and a lot of the users were not the Silicon Valley folks. That's um, funny. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. But sometimes it works like that. Like it, the story has always been that the reason Seinfeld got to stay on the air as long as it did at the beginning, because it was it was not doing well nationwide and the suits at the network were like well it's to new york which is typically code for <laughs> jewish um but for some reason it was number one no matter where they put it in st louis and uh and they were like well i guess if the people in st louis are digging it then it must not be to new york so we have good ta- good taste about yeah. something and so we'll like we'll stick with it a little bit longer <laughs> Yeah, I will. yeah, you're the tastemakers. Yeah, <laughs> every once in a while, you get that and Bush Light—that's pretty much all. That's our claim yeah. to fame. Anything else we're at the top of the charts about is usually violence. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. Oh. so before we segue back into Peloton, real quick, tell us about the Block Party app. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Block Party, our vision is that anybody who goes online should be able to be in control of their experience. So if you think about now, anywhere you go online, anywhere that there's user-generated content, there's a risk of something being unpleasant or upsetting or bad. I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and you're mentioning the hashtags feature on Peloton and how that could potentially be misused as well. And that's one example where... And anywhere you allow people to type in things, they can type in bad things. (laughs) It's going to get ugly. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, exactly. And this runs across the entire internet, right? And so our vision is that when you go online, you should be able to be in control of that. You should be able to feel safe psychologically and not be upset by things that you're going to see. You should be able to control, like, you know, if your kids are going online, you don't want them to see profanity because they're young and profanity is inappropriate for their age. Like, you should be able to control that. So that's our, our vision. Uh, where we're starting right now is a very specific slice of that problem, which is abuse and harassment online. And we're starting with Twitter. I want to move to other platforms soon. But um, actually, like, Tying back to diversity and inclusion advocacy work I've done, I spend a lot of my time on Twitter. That is my primary platform for activism um, and just like having a presence. And so I do get a fair amount of abuse and harassment on Twitter. And it's very frustrating that when I post things, it's very possible that I'll then get hit with a wave of really unpleasant things in my notifications or app mentions. And I have to balance the positive value I get from being on this platform with the negative value of being upset by the things that are coming in. Like I've had to deal with all sorts of harassment. Sometimes it's like drive by just like a random person coming to say something mean to me to really extended harassment and stalking and like all sorts of bad stuff. And it's actually quite psychologically damaging. And I think I manage it 
okay. And sometimes I know like I need to just step away or not check my mentions, but it can really take a toll over time. And you're now starting to see some higher profile cases in the news around um, people who've been bullied so much and they received so much abuse online that they've actually committed suicide. Or I mean, in, in less extreme cases, sometimes just like getting offline or just like making big shifts in their in their lives because of this. Um, right. That's because they have no control over what they're seeing. Um, and so block parties idea is like we put the controls back with the user. Um, so you can set filtering mechanisms and say like, here's the kind of stuff I want to see or here's who I want to hear from and here's who I don't want to hear from. And block party can filter what's coming in to you on these different social platforms. And so then you just have a cleaner experience. You can still browse for Twitter. You can keep using Twitter as you normally would, but just have like a, a safer experience. You're not going to be upset by random things showing up in your app mentions. Um, but we still actually put all the stuff that's been hidden somewhere that you can access it, which is really important um, for people who are using platforms in a very public way, for example, for journalists or politicians or activists, you actually do want to reach a wider audience and hear from people. So journalists, it might be hearing feedback on your stories or tips for new stories for politicians that might be engaging with constituents. So you actually do want to be open to a broader network. And that's where a lot of the value of the platforms is. You don't just want to be talking to people that you already know. But when the incoming stream is such a mix of abuse and harassment alongside the things that you want to see. It's very difficult to manage. So we put all of the stuff that's been filtered into a separate place where you can actually go view it a bit later. So it's analogy. You can kind of steal yourself yeah, you for that. Gird your, your loins before you go <laughs> wading into that one. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know when you're when you're gonna go look at your um, spam folder and your email, you kind of mentally prepare yourself for like most of this stuff is not gonna be good, but sometimes there right. is good stuff in there that I need to fish out. So once you right. go check your spam folder, you're like, oh, oops, like I missed something that was good, like but it's okay, like I'll fish it out and then respond to it now. But that kind of kind of psychological, you're actually, you're stealing yourself for that makes it very different than if you were to just see all that stuff in your inbox, your app mentions on Twitter. So that's what we're working on with Block Party. It's fun. Like we're at the very, very early stages still. Um, but it's a very rewarding experience to be able to work on something that's so meaningful to me. And I feel like I'm quite lucky to be at this intersection of having the skills and experiences having worked at a number of platform companies. And actually, I worked on moderation tools as part of my time at Quora. And I've like, you know, done the platform side work around this, like built machine learning models for Quora, for example, around um, moderation, experienced harassment, unfortunately, but now I can turn that into the sort of experience that inspires the work I'm doing now. So it is nice to feel like I have this agency where I can try to do something about a problem that I have. Whereas like some of the folks I've spoken to in terms of like user research, understand their experiences with abuse and harassment online. It's very frustrating experience because they have this problem, but there's very little that they can do about it besides try to demand that the platforms do more. But it's hard to demand that Twitter make any substantive changes in a short period of time or Facebook or Instagram or any of these platforms. But I feel like I can at least try to solve this problem. I feel very lucky that I have this software engineering background and having worked at these companies and um, having the firsthand experience of, of the problem, I can actually try to build a solution for it. That's pretty yeah. awesome. That's just, that's very awesome. Just thinking in the future, you might have a spam folder and a douchebag folder. Right, <laughs> right. right. Side just, by just side. Just put all the douchebags over right. here. You can go check it <laughs> out later. <laughs> yep, yep. yep. <laughs> and that'd be a nice little passive aggressive like, oh, I'm, you know, like right now when you get to be like, 
oh, I, I missed your email. Whoops, it went to my spam. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I missed oh. your email. Whoops, apparently I thought you were a douchebag. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. The algorithms. where it went. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I actually I already do have that because I, I am running Block Party now on my Twitter account. And so it's, it's already filtering a lot of people for me. And so I go look into that folder. I'm like, oh, wow, yes, a lot of people did get hidden. That's fine. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need to hear from them. Um, so it's funny when some of them get really angry that I'm not replying to them. So they'll go like back. They just keep trying to get my attention by saying like, I've been replying to you for years and you've never responded to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to keep you still muted. <laughs> I still don't need to see any of your stuff and still don't need to respond to you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny how I, people get mad that you don't take the yeah. bait. And I'm the one that reached out to her for the interview. So now so I, I hope you didn't end up I in the feel, douchebag. I feel filter. pretty good that I made made it through the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, I must be living right. Oh, no, you, you look totally legitimate. I mean, you're you're talking about Peloton. It must be legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> Shoo. <laughs> so uh, speaking of Peloton, yeah, which we were at one point. Who who is your favorite instructor so far? So I really enjoy almost all of the instructors. It's really hard to pick a favorite, but uh, I would say I really like Emma Lovewell. Um, okay. And I like the, she she's very musical. I think she has like mm-hmm. dance and music or DJ background. So it's nice when she picks tracks like are new music for me to listen to, but also like writing to the beat of the music is really fun. And then I think yeah. the other thing is actually like she is um, Asian or half Asian. Right. Um, and I think there's something about the representation where like when I see her, I'm like, Oh, like she's, she's Asian. Like I can identify with her. She's like posted photos with her mom on Instagram. Like, Oh, like her mom looks vaguely like my mom. Like I identify with that. Um, which is also particularly relevant given that it is like Asian heritage month and Peloton is celebrating that as well. Yes. Yes. I got my, my badge. I'm a big badge collector. So I did take a few of the Asian heritage classes. Um, <laughs> do you do you ever take any of the content besides the bike content? I do. I try to do everything as possible. I don't have full weight setup, so I can't do all that. And I don't have a treadmill, unfortunately, so I can't do the boot camp classes. But I'll do. I've done some of the outdoor running classes, do the strength yoga. Right now, I'm doing the May challenge for the UK ladies Peloton mm-hmm. group, which is to do a class from every instructor. Yes. Uh, so that's a good forcing function to just like dig through everything. Like I took a class from Eric, one of the German instructors this morning that was just all in German. <laughs> like, well, there's metrics. It's fine. I just follow the metrics. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been really fun to try out all the different um, types of classes. I even did the dance cardio classes. Well, yes. there was for one of those this past week. Uh, but I actually took the class before for that was the quest class. I'm a really bad dancer. I'm not coordinated, but it's just fun to try everything in the catalog. There's a lot of stuff in there. There is. And the reason I, I asked you that specifically is if uh, Emma is your favorite, you should try her uh, core challenge that she had, like the program, the core program. Oh, yes. It was, yes. I haven't God, it's one done of my it favorite. all the way through, but I think I've I've done all the classes in it, just not in the right order. <laughs> but I, I might go back and do it again. Yeah, it's fabulous. It's just so good. It's one of my favorites. Uh, and like you said, the dance cardio is fun. So you've done both of the quest classes. Yes, I have. <laughs> You're a badge collector, too. <laughs> I was actually just thinking, like, I only had one of the Asian Heritage Month um, badges. Today, I went and did another class to get a second one. <laughs> <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be a few more next week because they're going to resume the um, studio filming. So I think yes. Emma, I don't know if 
Emma's doing one, but I think Allie is doing a K-pop themed ride, which would be fun to have all like, yeah. Korean music. Um, well, so I'm looking forward to those. And I did a run the other day, and I don't know what your outside levels of activity are where you are, you know, how restricted you are to getting outside. But if if you can, they have like uh, runs that you can turn into outside runs because most of the time they'll tell you, hey, we're at the halfway point if you want to go back now. Uh, so you can kind of turn any of the run- the treadmill classes if they're just a run or a walk and run. You can turn those into outdoor classes if that works for you. I could try that. I'm not very good at uh, modulating my pace. So I, I haven't tried any of them, but like when I do um, those kinds of classes in other studios and they'll say like now sprint or whatever. Like I have uh, numbers in my head for what a sprint speed is, but when I'm outside, I cannot force myself to run a very different speed. I just run at the same speed. I'm, a, I'm like a one gear person. Like I cannot <laughs> shift gears. <laughs> I totally get it. I struggle with that, too, because especially we live in a very hilly area. Like there's hills all around our house. And so it's like, oh, well, go faster. I'm on a hill. I'm going as fast as I'm going to (laughs) go. I'm moving my arms. Moving my arms fast as if I'm running. Yeah. Like when you're crossing in front of a car and you're like, I'm not going to run, but I'll move my arms to make you feel like I'm. I'll show you that I'm thinking about making an effort. Yeah, Yeah, I'm totally yelling at the instructors, though, if I'm on a hill. Like, yeah, 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 I know. (laughs) As fast as I'm going. Okay. When you you told me that they they tell you at the halfway point, I'm like, they should tell you at like the 40% point because because you're going to, there's no way you're running that second half as fast as you're running that first half. A lot of times, actually, (laughs) if if you listen to their cueing, a lot of times you do go faster in the second half because the first half, a lot of it is your warm up. Tom, so he doesn't. Gotcha. In, in, I'm lazy. I don't. Yeah, do any he of doesn't this, do any so. of the exercise. That's why I have yeah. to explain that to him. But um, <laughs> uh, okay. So, do you have any advice for somebody who's just getting started with Peloton or exercise in general? I think just start doing it and don't be too hard on yourself in the beginning about trying to achieve any particular goals. Like just start doing it and build a habit. I think for me, early on, what was really helpful was just like forcing myself to go to the gym every day or like run a little bit every day or on a regular cadence. And then once it becomes a habit, then it becomes very addictive. Um, But the thing is like before you've gotten into working out and if it feels like a a mental struggle and you don't have the positive vibes associated with it, it can be harder um, because then you have to use all this willpower to get yourself to work out. But once you get into the habit, you're not exerting any willpower to do the workouts anymore. And then once you get really into it, you have the the problem that I have, which is there's like not enough hours to like try all the different classes I want to try. But <laughs> don't worry about that when you're getting started. Just like show up and try doing things. I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. <laughs> absolutely. You know, uh, to tie everything uh, together. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, Crystal, but uh, Peloton actually utilized the Block Party app and all the Oliver Lee classes went away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too much, Tom. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get yelled at. Too soon. <laughs> this is what I bring to the table. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and yes. busy exercise schedule to join us. Yes, and I know we took a little more time than we expected. But it was it fascinating. Is, it was a fabulous conversation, yeah. though. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for and, doing this. And where can people find you on social media where you would like to be found? <laughs> my main channel is Twitter. Uh, my handle is Trikatora, T-R-I-K-E-T-O-R-A. Sorry, it's really hard to spell. I 
got this as my AOL instant messenger screen name a very long time ago. I think AOL instant messenger is so old. You no longer need to specify that you did it a long time ago. Right. <laughs> That's, thank you, thank you. Like, like no one's questioning that it happened a long, long time well, ago. Well, Tom, you know, since you since you said that to her, I will just say, just think, you were already old when she yes. was doing that. I was like, I was like twenty five when that was up and running. So I know. <laughs> Um, but uh, thank you so much yes, for doing this. And whenever we post this episode, just so you know, people will be able to easily find you because we have a blog that we put up and it has an entire transcription of the episode. And so it will have links to everything, including your ability, like your Twitter handle. So yeah. <laughs> no worries make it about easy. that. <laughs> and, whenever, and whenever it's ready to go live, uh, you'll get an email with like links and, and images if you want to use them or whatnot. And we would love oh, yeah. if you would like to share it. That would be fabulous. Yeah. Yes, I'll try to find some good images to send you. Yay! Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This was great. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a me fun too. Conversation. And absolutely. And if you're ever looking for a project manager, let that's me know. That's what she does. <laughs> <Mobile> 2.0. <laughs> hey. If you ever need somebody to help sell concert tickets, that's then, what I do. Then you can, you can, you can talk to Tom. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds great. Cool. Oh, thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was good to chat. And I'll look forward to, to having this episode up. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And you have a great rest of your weekend. All right. Take care. You Bye. too. Bye. Bye-bye. So I guess that brings another one to a close. Sure does. Uh, what, pray tell, do you have in store for people next week? Ooh, ooh, I know. Courtney Snowden. She is the cre- the creator and founder of Black Girl Magic. Awesome. I am a Black Girl Ma- Magic Peloton edition. There we go. I need to be specific because I right. know there's Black Girl Magic that exists outside of Peloton, but we only care about the Peloton one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, now it sounds like I don't care about Black Girl I know. Girl. I was oh, like, are man. you sure you want to say it that No, way? I don't. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think people know what you meant. I hope so. <laughs> this oh, is a good man. test to see how many people listen all the way to the end, too. Right? So, but, uh, so anyway, that's what people have to look forward to. Until then, where can people find you? Uh, if you want to find me. After all <laughs> that. After all of that. You've been canceled. <laughs> uh, oh. um, <laughs> Facebook.com slash Crystal D. O'Keefe. Or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter on the bike or the tread at Clip Out Crystal. And you can find me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. Find the show online, Facebook.com slash The Clip Out. While you're there, like the page, join the group. And of course, uh, wherever you're getting your podcasts from, be sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode. So that's it for this one. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep pedaling. And running. And running.